Please be seated. Good evening to you. Revelation chapter 2 tonight. And uh, we'll begin tonight by reading the entirety of uh, what uh, we intend upon getting through this evening. In chapter 2, Revelation verse 1. And Jesus declares to John to write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you and that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I think it's very important once again to remember that the first five uh, words of this entire book and what it communicates to us, and that is the entirety of this book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think very often there can be a tendency, and I understand it perfectly, to want to head to immediately to all of the activity and the supernatural and, and all that's recorded in the book related to the great tribulation, the seals and the trumpet and the bold judgments and all of these kinds of things. But Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, which are recorded in chapters 2 and 3, of the revelation are just as much a revelation of of the Lord and who he is and what's important to him and they're probably more important to us as as Christians because here we have we're not going to be in the great tribulation and and here we have this priceless revelation of what's important to Jesus in a local church in a church like this or any other church that associates with his name in this community or all around the world now it's interesting as we read the Gospels and Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, of course, in, the, in a general sense, he was constantly talking about the kingdom of God. He was talking to people about a relationship with him and, and how to become saved and what was pleasing and displeasing and is pleasing and displeasing to God and in a more personal sense in terms of all of our individual lives and these kinds of things. And then the Holy Spirit through the apostles and, and, uh, and Luke in the book of Acts and through the epistles in the book of Acts began to put together what is important to God related to the local church, the structure of a church, the emphases of a church, what's to be emphasized, what is not to be emphasized, what's important to God, what is not important to God. 
And so often sometimes if you read enough theology, and sometimes theologians can live in their heads just a little bit on things, you can come, uh, uh, some of them would have us to believe that this whole concept of the church and everything was something of Paul's doing and that Jesus really didn't emphasize it at all. And you wonder if, if they've read the book of Revelation at all related to this. Here we have Jesus talking about what he likes to see and what he doesn't like to see in individual Christian lives, but especially in, in a local individual uh, uh, church. And the seven churches that he writes to are the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamos, Thyatira, church of Philadelphia, the church of Sardis, and the church of Laodicea. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in that order. And one of the questions that people can sometimes ask is why in the world those seven churches? Were those the only seven churches in existence at the time? There were hundreds, if not thousands, of local churches in existence by the time the book of Revelation is uh, written. And many of the churches are much better known than some of these that Jesus addresses here. Uh, I think of, of the church of Col at Colossae, the church um, at Philippi, uh, the church in Thessalonica, in Antioch. These churches were uh, far more well known than some of these seven that are listed here. But there is something about these seven. When you take them and what they were doing, what they weren't doing, and what Jesus had to say to these, that Jesus knew would be timeless instruction for his people all through the ages. Somehow this perfect group of seven says everything that he wants to encourage us in, everything that he wants to, to, to warn us about. Now these seven letters can be applied principally three ways. One of them is to understand that these letters were written to a literal, physical, first century church. There was a church in Ephesus, there was a church in Sardis, and so, so forth, and the letter was written to them. But the letter can also be applied to every single local church in existence in the world today. Every church, this one included, at any moment in time, typically corresponds uh, most to one of these seven churches at any point in time in their history. And that's true of, of, of virtually any, any church. So as a pastor, I can sit down and I can assess this church, what we're doing, what we're emphasizing, all of these different kinds of things, and then I identify which of the seven churches we are most like at the moment, and then take and apply the encouragements and apply the exhortations associated with that church to this uh, you know, local uh, congregation, the local situation. And uh, for instance, a couple of years ago when every year the, uh, the pastors, we try and get away and just pray and seek the Lord related to this fellowship and all. And, and one of the things that each of these seven churches, you know, encapsulates to a single theme to me and to be able to just look at it and say, all right, are, are we the church of Ephesus right now? Are we the church of Smyrna? Are we the church of Pergamos or Thyatira? And, and to look at those different things, if we slipped from any of these things, if we allowed things in that we shouldn't allow. And it's a wonderful grid to, to work a church through. But it applies not only to a local church, it, it readily applies to an individual um, Christian life where we can take 
and, 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 and apply it to our own personal relationship with the Lord. Because every single one of us in our personal walk with the Lord, at this moment in time, as we would look at these seven letters, our lives would correspond more than, than the others to one of these letters supremely. And then I can take those same encouragements and warnings and then apply them to my own personal life. And that's a wonderful grid to run my own personal relationship with the Lord through, to make sure that it is what He wants uh, our relationship with Him uh, to be. These churches, I think, are as needed today as they ever were 2,000 years ago, and I think perhaps even more so in order to keep the church uh, exactly what Jesus wants it to be. Uh, maybe you've heard the old story or the old expression about changing the price tags sometimes in spiritual environments where we put a million dollar price tag on something that God would uh, sell for five cents or we'll put a five cent price tag on something that he would uh, esteem to be worth a million dollars. Sometimes it's really hard to keep straight in our minds and I think in the, in the current ministry environment of the United States of America, it's very hard right now to try and remember what is the church supposed to be, what is important uh, to God, what is unimportant uh, to, to Him. And one of the interesting things to go through the seven churches on your own, I won't do it this way, but it, if every one of the churches that you would look at and from the natural and even from today's ministry definitions, everyone that you would look and say, that church is just the greatest church that it, it could be. It is absolutely a success. Jesus, to a church, looks at that one and says, it is a failure outright or it's on its way to becoming a failure. The churches that we're prone to look at and say they're an absolute failure, uh, to look at them and they are a failure in the eyes of the world to a church Jesus looks at that same church and declares them to be an unqualified success and everything's backwards on this fallen planet and the seven churches help us to keep things uh, keep focused on on what's really valuable and what isn't the seven churches, these letters to the seven churches, they follow the same uh, structure for the most part. He addressed the messenger of the individual church that he's writing to. Then Jesus gives a self-description of himself, which is, I think, probably the most important part of each one of the letters. Because he takes a description of himself out of the chapter 1 of the Revelation, and whatever he's describing himself to as that church, it is something that that church is in danger of forgetting to their own peril. So he reminds them of some aspect of his character or, or of his nature. And then he declares to each church, I know your works. And then he goes on to commend or encourage each church uh, there's two churches he couldn't find anything good to commend them on. That's kind of sad. We'll hit them in, in the coming weeks. And then following the commendation, and he begins with uh, commending and encouraging, Jesus then uh, rebukes what needs to be rebuked or uh, exhorts and what needs to be exhorted in the local church. And there are two churches that receive no exhortation. There's nothing wrong with those churches among, among the seven. And then there's a reminder of his coming an exhortation for us to have an ear to hear what it is that he's just told us and then a promise to uh, overcomers. Excuse me a moment. So now to the church of Ephesus. 
And I think it's very, very helpful to have a little bit of background related to, historical background related to the Church of Ephesus to understand a little bit about what's happening here. Uh, you may disagree, and uh, that's fine. Uh, but it's always been helpful to me, and of course, uh, I'm self-centered enough to believe that whatever has helped me uh, will help you equally. So, um, you pray for me, those of you who I uh, kill at this particular point uh, by being too tedious. Ephesus was in its day a tremendous commercial center. Uh, it was a harbor, a port town, and it found itself, uh, fortunately enough, on one of the main trade routes, or the main trade route, between the city of Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire, and uh, Asia Minor, which was Turkey, and then on into the Middle East. All kinds of traffic flowed over the overland between Rome and the East, and they had a big part in, in all of, of that. It was easily the greatest and the most influential influential city in, in the province of, of Asia, which would be modern-day uh, southwest Turkey. It was a city of about 200,000 people, so about the size uh, of Modesto, but I'm sure uh, traffic flowed better. Uh, because, so, they had all of this wealth passing through it, and cities that have tremendous wealth passing, passing through it have a way of you know, becoming partakers uh, in, in that wealth. So a very, very wealthy, wealthy city, much like our country. It was a city of great political importance in the Roman Empire. It was what was known as a free city. Uh, the city Rome kept uh, an empire together for a thousand years. It's unbelievable to think of in, in our minds. And part of holding that entire empire together, they used the uh, Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. They used their military to hold uh, parts of their empire together. But then they didn't, it, it was a carrot and a stick kind of thing. There were other parts of their empire where they were holding together such a, a broad diversity of people and cultures and nations and heritages and backgrounds. And they didn't have any hope of holding it all together uh, through military presence. So they would allow these countries that were part of the Roman Empire, they had to remain a part of the Roman Empire. That wasn't open to negotiation with the Romans. But they would allow them the freedom to express their culture and to express their language and their heritage and these kinds of things. And cities that they felt were not really likely to rebel against the Roman Empire, that they profited from Rome bringing their peace by dominating the world at that time, they would sometimes give that city extraordinary freedom. And they would call these places uh, free cities because they enjoyed a greater degree of freedom that, uh, than other cities did. A free city like Ephesus didn't have Roman troops stationed in it. Uh, it had its own democratically elected governing body. It had its own judges. Uh, to be a free city was a tremendous privilege and something that no one would want to jeopardize. You remember in uh, Acts chapter 19, as Paul is ministering there in Ephesus, the effect of his work is so great that it's begun to put a dent uh, in the sales of uh, the silver images being made to the pagan goddess Diana. And Demetrius rises up among his fellow silversmiths and says, this guy's coming in here and telling everyone that, you know, you can't worship a, a god that's made with hands. That's no kind of god. And, and turning everybody away from 
from uh, Diana and all. And by the way, uh, we have become very prosperous in our trade here and all. And they got into a big frenzy. And great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They began to chant uh, for two hours. And, and some of the Christians, their lives were in danger during that, that period. The town clerk, you say, how in the world are you going to put a riot like that down? The town clerk, uh, Barney Fife. Uh, he just comes in and uh, he reminds them that they're a free city and that's a privileged sta uh, status. And he reminds them that in, in the riot that they are conducting, that if they don't put an end to this, it's going to be noticed by Rome and their status as a free city is going to be put in jeopardy. That was the end of the riot. Everybody dispersed and they went home. Uh, they liked being a, a free uh, city. They were also known as uh, what was known as an assize town where uh, Roman justice would be uh, dispensed. And so a Roman governor would make his way on a regular basis to Ephesus. The great trials would be tried there. And so it was a city that, while it wasn't, uh, it had great freedom under the Roman Empire, it still uh, had all of the Roman pomp and pageantry and all of these kinds of things several times a year making its way as the Roman governor would come into the city of Ephesus. It was the center of the Pan-Ionian game. It's hard to believe that uh, any nation or people could be more sports crazed than we are. And, uh, and I'm not saying that as a criticism. Uh, I'm afflicted by it. Uh, I watched that triple overtime game between uh, Michigan State and uh, Gonzaga. And the good guys won. I'm happy Gonzaga uh, won that particular game. But I, I don't always get to watch this kind of stuff. It was triple overtime, and we had uh, the twins, uh, grandchildren, over at our house. But because uh, they're not used to watching, having me watch television, and, uh, and so I'm not turning the thing off. It's a triple overtime, excuse me. And, uh, and, and I happened to, I mean, it's, it was basketball in its purest form and all. And uh, Tara, one of the twins, said to me, uh, Papa, you watch too much television. <laughs> she just informed me of that. Um, on that. So, but they had the Pan-Ionian uh, Pan Games uh, were uh, uh, conducted there in Ephesus. They were on the same par as the Olympic Games in those days. So people would come from all around the world to participate and, and to witness the Pan-Ionian Games in Ephesus. And Ephesus was also a great pagan religious center. It was the home to the temple of, of the pagan uh, goddess Diana. And, and the temple uh, to Diana had three incarnations. It progressively got better and better and better. But the, uh, the, uh, the temple to Diana at the time that Jesus writes this through uh, John, it's in its third incarnation. And it was one of, this particular one was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And they declared in that day that the sun sees nothing finer in his course than Diana's temple. And the temple was built in her honor and the masterpiece, of, it was four times the size of the Greek Parthenon. Masterpiece of Greek architecture and all kinds of art and wealth brought into it. It was 220 years in terms of the three uh, incarnations of it. 
in the building of it, just shining marble inside and out, 342 feet long, over the length of a football field. It's all sports illustrations tonight. You'll bear with me. 164 feet wide and just columns like a forest all the way down the edges, each one of them 56 feet high. And it was, you know, an architectural and all masterpiece. But because Diana was the, the goddess of fertility, the worshiper, worship of her was characterized by uh, gross lewdness and, and sexual uh, immorality. There were thousands of priestesses associated with the temple of Diana. And what people would do is uh, they would uh, go to worship Diana at the temple and then to consummate their worship, they would then hire one of these prostitutes. It was the way that money was made and it was a legitimizing of prostitution uh, in the name of, of religion. And, uh, and so all of this was, was, was uh, going on. We can tend to think sometimes that you know the world's never been more immoral than it is today it's never been worse than it is today we can think our own country's never been as bad as it's uh, it is is today and maybe it, that's so related to our country but not related to the world the city so just surrounded this church was by sexual immorality anywhere they would want to look uh, there it was to say nothing of how uh, uh, sex was viewed by the Romans and they were very very promiscuous and had worked out their own guilt-free way of of uh, being immoral it was a city also that was dominated by superstition it had what was called the Ephesian letters that you could uh, buy and if you bought one of these Ephesian letters let's say you wanted they were basically good luck charms you wanted good luck in your business or you needed a healing I mean it sounds a little like the televangelist sometimes um, or uh, you know you you know one of your children was in the middle of something and all and you'd buy one of these letters and it would bring good luck to the situation and and all of these things were sold in Ephesus and it was also a city finally that was uh, accommodated a very very large uh, criminal element uh, the, uh, the temple had what was known as a right of asylum if you committed a crime uh, in uh, that, that particular area and you were able to get to the grounds of the temple of Diana before you were arrested you were safe within her grounds as far as a bow shot for 200 yards as long as you stayed within that particular uh, area no one could arrest you and and prosecute you so you've got all of this immorality you've got all of this paganism you've got all this kind of stuff going on and then you throw in you know uh, some of the worst criminals in the world in into the mix and and uh, that was the city of, of Ephesus and and the person might be tempted into thinking well uh, God uh, looked at that and said there's no hope for that I'm going to start a church in Ripon uh, but he didn't he looked at Ephesus and he sent the Apostle Paul there God bless Ripon right that's right so um, so he looks at Ephesus and he says I know how to change cities like this and he sends the Apostle Paul there on his third missionary journey and the Apostle Paul would spend three years of his very finite life in, in, in ministry life in the city of Ephesus and longer than he spent in any other church in establishing it until there was established one of the strongest healthiest churches in Ephesus in, in, the, in the entire uh, early church and this church was so strong 
what God was doing in Ephesus, that it was putting the, the sails of these idols that were being made in the worship of Diana. It was put a dent in their sails and was putting even the worship of Diana in jeopardy. And that's not evangelistically speaking. That's not Paul telling us about what that's from Demetrius's mouth when he spoke to his fellow workers and said, we better put a stop to these guys or nobody's going to be buying our stuff any, anymore. Paul wrote, uh, went to Ephesus, started to establish the church there in about 53 A.D. This helps it get clear in my mind. He stayed there till about 55 A.D., about 10 years after going there in 53 A.D., he wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus in 63 A.D. from uh, his prison in Rome. And then as we piece things kind of together in terms of the Bible, it appears that uh, Timothy then went to Ephesus, became kind of the overseer of the church. And then sometime later, if we put together some historical sources, it appears that the Apostle John himself in his late years, and even at the time of the writing of this prior to his imprisonment, was the overseer of, of the church in, in Ephesus. And so Jesus dictates this letter to the church in Ephesus about 40 years after it was established and about 30 years after Paul's writing of his epistle to the Ephesians. So it gives us a sense of timing. Now that wasn't so bad. Was that helpful for anybody uh, in the room? And it's good. All right. I love all three of you. And uh, <laughs> the coffee's on me uh, after the service, but it's free anyway. So, And so Paul's letter to them, his epistle to the Ephesians, was indicated that the church was a very, very solid work of God's Holy Spirit. But now, 30 years later, Jesus writes to them with, with a grave warning. He begins by addressing the messenger of the church in verse 1. And he refers to this messenger as an angel. Now, the angel seems to refer to the pastor or the senior pastor of the church, whoever is an ultimate kind of spiritual authority at, at that particular church. The Greek word translated angel in the New Testament it literally means messenger. And most often that Greek word is translated angel and it refers to a supernatural angelic being. But it's not always applied to an angelic being. There are times in the New Testament where it is applied to a human being who is carrying a message for God. For instance, Jesus used it in speaking of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse um, 9 and 10, when he said, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. It's used elsewhere to refer to the messengers that John the Baptist sent to Jesus to see whether he was the promised one or not. Luke chapter 7, verse 24. And when the messengers of John had departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken with the wind and so forth? When Jesus sent disciples out before him um, on his way to Jerusalem, 
in order to prepare a place for him uh, in Samaria. Uh, he used the, ter the term that is used for them by Luke in Luke chapter 9 verse uh, 52. Uh, the, the word messenger is used concerning these human beings. And now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. Talking about his disciples and as they went they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. So the context determines whether it's talking about an angelic being or whether it's talking about a human messenger. And since the head of the local church is a human being called to deliver God's message and not an angel, it seems best to me to uh, see it referring to a pastor, the person uh, responsible for the oversight and, and the well-being of the church. Jesus comes to them with a particular name, uh, speaking of himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Again, he's emphasizing something about himself that they need to remember. When he comes to them as the one who holds the seven lamps uh, or the seven stars in his right hand, the seven stars we know from chapter 1 verse 20, it refers to the angels or the messengers of the seven churches or the pastors of, of the seven churches. And a star is a light. These men were to be a light for the Lord, not only before the world, but in the congregation that he had called them uh, to, to be uh, over. And then he declares himself to be the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we're told also from chapter 1, verse 20, what that means. It represented the seven churches of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And he speaks of himself as walking in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, walking in the midst of the church. And as we saw last week, he's in our midst here today. He walks in our midst. He's in the children's church auditorium. He's in the nursery. He's everywhere. And uh, he is in our midst, eager to bless. But the idea of, of him walking here in the original language, it means to walk judiciously. He walks in the midst of Calvary Chapel of Modesto, like all other churches, and he weighs what we're doing here. And, and he looks at it and he judges it, uh, not in a condemning way, but he, he judges it to determine whether we are, we claim to be about him, we claim to represent him. We are building upon him and he is free to come in and then to assess whether this really is about him and whether it really is uh, about what he wants a church to be. Now in both of these things, when he talks about holding the seven stars, and he talks about uh, walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Both of those things speak of his presence among his people. They speak of an intimacy that the Lord wants to have uh, with his people. And, and so what they had uh, were in danger of forgetting about the Lord here and needed to be reminded of is that he was in their midst. And church had just kind of become church, and they had in some way lost consciousness of the fact of, of his presence, of him being here, and of this being really all uh, about uh, him. Now notice his commendation to them, his encouragement of the things that they were doing right in uh, verses 2 and 3. He said, I know your works. So this is a church that's uh, active church. It's a serving church. They're very, very busy about 
the things of the Lord. Notice he commends them for their labor, verse 2. And the word labor there is kopos. It means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Here you have a church in a group of men and women who are serving the Lord to the point of fall into bed at the end of the day exhausted. That's how they served him. They served him to the point of exhaustion. They served him with the sweat of their brow. They didn't just work hard. They worked hard at the things of, of, of the Lord to the point of, of exhaustion. They were a hard-working church because the work in Ephesus was hard. And they were willing to do that work. And they didn't serve just when it was convenient or, you know, to the point of personal sacrifice or that, that kind of thing. And then when it went beyond that, they said, no, I'm not really uh, into that. They, they served the Lord to the point of, of exhaustion. And you just stop. And this is not just, these aren't just, isn't just a word on the page. It talks about real life Christians in the history of the church. And you look at that and you say, wow. Those are... Uh, those kinds of people are not a dime a dozen in, in the body of Christ. I want to thank so many of you who are that in this church. And Jesus noticed it, and he appreciated it. Then notice in verse 2, he commends them for their patience. And the word patience is our good friend, hupomone. It's a steadfast endurance. It's a just keeping on no matter what. But keeping on with a victorious attitude, with a good attitude. And, and so they were hardworking, but they were also patient. They just kept serving the Lord no matter what. They weren't quitters. No matter how much the opposition came against them and the things of the Lord and the persecution in Ephesus, they, they didn't quit. And, and they had great attitudes related to the work of the Lord there. They had that steadfast endurance, no self-pity and, and no complaining or any of those things. So here's a very, very faithful church. I mean, here in the midst of the sexual immorality and the idolatry and the superstition and the persecution, and they just stayed with the Lord. Wow. I mean, those kinds of people, again, they're not a dime a dozen. And then notice in verse 2, he commended them in that they could not, uh, they cannot bear those who are evil. So they're not only a hardworking and a persevering church, but they're also a pure church and a holy church. And they're a pure church and a pure people in a very, very unholy and very, very impure environment of, the, of their city. And so here they are uninfluenced by the ungodly culture around them. They're not allowing the culture to fashion them. They are maintaining a distinction as a Christian in the middle of all of this immorality and paganism and, and all of the, these kinds of, of, of things. And they were willing to stand uh, uh, against what was those who were willfully evil and unrepentant in their evil. Evil was not accommodated or tolerated in this church. And it was very commendable. And Jesus appreciated it about them. And not every church in the early, in the early church was like that. Remember the church in, in Corinth? They had this guy, he was, he was uh, sleeping with his father's wife, his, his stepmother. 
in the church in Corinth says, well, aren't we big and aren't we liberal, you know, in terms of our interpretation of the scriptures? And, and don't we have big hearts of love? And Paul said, love, shmove, what are you talking about? I judge it from here. Get that guy out of that church and make him choose between his sin or fellowship in the body of Christ. And the guy ultimately repented and, and Paul said, now bring him back into the church. But, but here's a church that was... was was very concerned about holiness and, and not accommodating evil within it. And then he commended them in verse 2 because they tested those who said they were apostles. Now this isn't talking about the twelve. The, the, the office of an apostle was broader than the twelve in the early church uh, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, so these people are going along saying, we are messengers from God, we are apostles and all. And at the church in, in Ephesus, if somebody even said, hey, I'm an apostle, they had cards all drawn up, a letterhead, all those kinds of things and everything. I always get a little concerned about people that get cards. The first thing they do is get a, their business cards made up. But anyway, uh, if, that, if you do that, I'm not, I'm not picking on you in, in any way. But So here they come in, and here were this and that and all in, in the, the church in, in Ephesus. They tested them. And if they found out that this person wasn't really an apostle, that they, they were a liar, then they exposed them as liars. And it's interesting, the word liar is there in the Bible, the L word. We can't use it almost today. But, but there are spiritual and, and religious liars. How do you test things? We test things by the Word of God. Paul wrote to the Church of Thessalonica, and he said, Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Acts 17.11, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind, and then they searched the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. They tested what the Apostle Paul taught them, and Paul wasn't offended by that. Paul was encouraged by that. And Jesus commends this church for testing people by the word of God so here you have a, uh, a church that is, is uh, testing all, all of these teachers by the word of God, the word of God and, and if they didn't match the test of the word of God, uh, they rejected them as liars and to test and to reject false teaching and teachers is not an unloving thing to do, it's good in, in God's eyes and then you notice that he commends them uh, for their perseverance again in verse 3. In verse 3, he commends them again for their patience, their hoopamoni once again. And then he commends them for their labor for his name's sake. This tells me that they had pure motives in what they were doing. Everything that they were involved in, all that they were doing, wasn't to make a name for themselves or to end up putting a statue out of themselves and, and things and, or to bring glory to themselves or any of those things. They were concerned. Uh, about the name of the Lord, that He would receive the glory, that He, uh, he that He would be exalted, His reputation would would be exalted, and that's tremendous. And you put all of these, in, and then in verse three, they have not uh, become weary. They've been all of that for forty years. That's amazing. And you look at that and you go, wow, 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 wow. We just found the perfect church. What am I doing uh, coming here? Uh, can you give me the address for this church? And, uh, and I'm going to go over and attend it. But it's not quite the perfect church. Because the, Jesus then exhorts the church in verses 4 and 5 when he declares to them, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. And he, he declares to them that despite all of this good, he had one thing against them. But the one thing is so serious, it threatens all of the rest of it, 
in, in God's mind. That this one thing is so important to Jesus that if he is forced to choose between this one thing and all these other things that they are, he would choose the one thing at the sacrifice of, of everything else. And this one thing is so serious that if it isn't corrected, despite all of their good that they're doing, he says, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Now, I personally would be very excited if the Lord wrote me a letter and said that there was just one thing that uh, he was concerned about in, uh, in my life. But this happens to be a very big thing. So whatever this one thing is, is very serious to Jesus, and I don't want uh, to be in, involved in it. And so just one thing, but it's a very, very big one thing. And Jesus' complaint is a simple one. He said, you have left your first love. You've left your first agape for me. And when he talks about leaving the first love, he's referring to their love for him, uh, the church's love for Jesus. Now notice, and it's very, very important. Got it. Now notice, and it's very important, you heard that. Are you with me? All right. You notice that they had not ceased to love him, and he doesn't accuse them of that. What he is concerned about is that they have lost a particular quality to their love for him. They have lost that love that they had for him when they were first saved. And the word first there and first love, it means the first, it means the former, it means the beginning. And, and it refers to the betrothal love, the espousal love. In the Jewish culture, when you would get married, you couldn't, you know, go to church or something and then see someone and say, oh boy, I want to marry that person and everything and be married in six weeks. In the Jewish culture in that time, uh, there was a betrothal period of one year where you would be, I mean, legally married to this person. And in, in a sense, it was as binding as marriage. But you still lived at home with your parents and you still could not be together unsupervised or any of these kinds of things. It was a one-year period of, of betrothal. Now, imagine the level of excitement that a person would have, you know, who wants to be married, uh, have during that one-year period, that betrothal love and the excitement of looking forward to the day that they would be married to, to this person that they, they loved. And so it's, we might call it the engagement love or the going uh, together love. And it's the love that you have at the first. And one of the qualities of first love is an excitement about the one that, that you love. And, and, there, and, and another uh, characteristic of first love is you're consumed with the one that you love. I mean, love is, uh, is pretty great. Pretty great, isn't it? To be in love, I hope everybody's been in love once. But to be, I mean, that's, that is a wonderful thing in the Lord to experience love. And, and here, it, it, when, when you fall in love with a person in, in this kind of a way, it's the kind of thing where you just, you can't wait to be in the company of this person. You can't wait to get off work to go see her. You'll ride a bicycle if you have to. 
You can't, I mean, you can't wait. Every bit of time that you get to spend with her or spend with him, you treasure it. Every letter or every note or every voicemail is read and listened to over and over and over again. You can't stop thinking about them, even if you would want to try to stop thinking about them. But who would want to try to stop thinking about them when you're in love this way? And if, and if you're experiencing it uh, young in life, you write their name all over everything. On the peachy folders. Does anybody remember a peachy folder? God bless you. On your jeans, on anything, with arrows and hearts and forevers and all of these things associated with what you're feeling, you know, toward this, this person and, 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 and everything. And spiritually, it refers to the love that someone has for the Lord when we first come to know Him, start our relationship with Him, first exposed to His, His, His grace. Jeremiah uh, uh, wrote of it and was really the Lord speaking through uh, Jeremiah in the Old Testament when in Jeremiah 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, and here it is, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. And in, in the Old Testament, the Israel is likened to the bride of, of Jehovah. Now you hold that thought right there for a second. Everybody all right? <clears throat> Have a good time? Okay. Now, in the New Testament, the relationship between Jesus and the church, that is, is Christians, is likened to uh, a groom with the bride. It's spoken of in terms of marriage, in terms of newlyweds. Now, the church of Ephesus would have been very, very familiar with this, this imagery because 30 years earlier, the Apostle Paul had written to them in his letter concerning this imagery. Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your own wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And then he goes on to speak, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Jesus views himself as the groom in this marriage relationship that we have with him, and the church is the bride. And, and in marriage, a first love speaks of the love that we have at the beginning of the marriage. One of the most beautiful things to ever see in life is to watch a bride on, on her wedding day. And you just look at her and you say, I hope she's like that the rest of her life, you know. But it's... Uh... <laughs> but anyway, it is beautiful. But I mean, the love that she has for this groom, the love that she has for this, this husband. And then sometimes in, in a marriage, the love can take on a lesser quality. There is still a love and a commitment for one another. But it ceases to have the, the first love 
uh, quality to it any, any longer. They love each other, but something's been lost. And one day, here, here's how it can kind of work. One day the husband just turns to his wife and he says, I don't like what we've become. I'm too busy, you're too busy, we are going in a thousand different directions, all of the things that we're involved in are good, we have stuff like we've never had stuff before, but I would trade all of it for what we had when we didn't have two quarters to rub together and we didn't care because we had one another and we loved each other's company and I want to go back to that, to love each other the way that we once did. And I think that any husband can, can understand that. With a marriage relationship, it's civil. Everyone's still committed to one another. Each one is hardworking, willing to sacrifice. But then one day you look at it and you say, where are the goo-goo eyes? I would sell everything that I have to open the door once again when I come home from work and to hear you shriek from the back of the house and come running and jump into my arms and to have that wealth once again be a part of our marriage and, and our, our relationship. I'd trade it all for the first love again. And he thinks, I, I um, didn't marry her supremely. To, to have someone to make beds, to raise children, to work together toward these mutually beneficial goals in life and all. I married her at the beginning because I was head over heels in love with her and she was with me. I married her for the relationship, not all of the things that she can do. And I don't know how we got here, and, but I don't like it. And I want to go back to when we were less efficient and less reserved and less experienced and more loving. And Jesus looks at the church and he says, that's exactly what I'm saying to this church. Jesus didn't save us supremely because he needed a, a, a labor force or a secretary or an office manager or a theologian. He saved us for relationship with him. That's what means everything to him. And all these other things, they mean a lot to him. He commended them related to those things, but they will never, ever mean more to him than the relationship. And if in the lives of his people those things are now considered what the relationship is, Jesus is faithful then to come to that individual or to come to that church and say, you don't understand what is important to me at all. I'll take all of those things in their proper place, but they'll never be a replacement for goo goo eyes. And they'll never be a replacement for you writing my name on your peachy folder or however you want to say it related to, to your life. And that's what he's speaking here to, to this church. They had all of this stuff going on, all these great things, but they had grown uh, apart. And, and, uh, and he's having a heart-to-heart -heart with them, like sometimes can happen within a marriage. And it's possible to have all these things, the structure, the activity, and all kinds of needs and being met and all these things and miss what this is all about and what this is all about from the get-go is a relationship with him and a love relationship with him. Now notice he speaks in verse 5 about the consequences of them failing to take him seriously. Sometimes in a marriage, one side won't take the other person seriously in what they're trying to say. 
And, uh, and so here he warns them if, if, if they don't listen to him, he's going to remove the lampstand from its place. What is its place? With the other lampstands, the rest of the body of Christ, in his presence. He said, if this doesn't change, I will remove you, the fullness of my presence from this local church. And when he does that, all of the work will still go on and all the efforts and all of the perseverance and all the doctrine and the testing and the love and respect for the Bible and all those things. But everyone that will come in after that will have that strange sense that all of these good things are happening, but there's something wrong here. There's something missing here. It is not about what this is supremely about and that is a love relationship with the Lord Jesus him, himself. So he says, in essence, I'm not going to bless a church with the fullness of my presence that forgets that what Christianity is all about supremely is a relationship. Why would I bring more people in to infect them with the same, same misunderstanding? But notice there's hope for them. And the hope for them is, as he declares there in, in uh, uh, verse 5, nevertheless, there, uh, there, remember therefore, and here's the solution to the problem, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent, do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Notice that word in verse 4, which I didn't read. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have, and here's the word, it's circleable in your Bible, you have left your first love. Notice he does not say you've lost your first love. We would have no hope of being able to solve this situation if we lost something. If, if you leave something, they're two entirely different qualities. If you take and you leave something in a particular place, then you know where it is and you know where to go back to to find it. To lose that same item is something entirely different. You don't have the foggiest idea where in the world to find it. They had not lost their first love. They had left their first love. And Jesus is going to explain to them that it's right where you left it. And he knows that their question is going to be, that's great, but how do I remember where I left it? And he's going to tell them how in three very, very simple things as, as he counsels them in this condition. Number one, he tells them to remember from where they have fallen. This is a sanctified um, memory. To remember when their personal relationship with the Lord uh, was that espousal love where the relationship meant more than everything else and to remember when that once characterized their life and, and to, to realize they have fallen from that and what they have fallen and, and the use of the word fallen indicates that they have landed into something that's inferior to what, to what they once had. And, and there is that, uh, so he's, he's telling you, you remember back in your Christian life when, when the relationship with Jesus was the most important thing. And I, and I think there can be that tendency as the years go on and, uh, and, and all and, and uh, to look at those early weeks of our, our relationship with the Lord in those early months and early years and, and uh, where there was that love and that espousal love and all and to view it as an odd period. 
Nobody could maintain that. I mean, nobody can uh, be in fifth gear all of the time, and nobody could, you know, and, and all of these, these kinds of things. But I've got, I, we've matured, you know. I can't be up like that all of the time and, 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 and everything and, and to figure that that's just something that's abnormal. It's, it's to be about the early part of the relationship, but it's impossible to sustain it. And so we begin to call it maturity when it begins to evaporate in our life. And what we're t- we have a tendency to call maturity uh, Jesus comes in and he calls it fallen. And so he calls on them to realize that what I had then was right and good. And, and then what I am now in terms of this church is, is fallen from that place. Then he calls on them to repent. And the word repent means to have a change of mind that results in a change of actions and, and direction. So he calls on them that the condition that they're in is one that they need to repent of. They need to change their mind about how they're, they're seeing all of, of these things. It's not enough to realize that I've left my first love. I must be willing to make the changes necessary in my life to get this thing uh, turned around. And it means to make a sharp break from, from this life that I'm in now. Do it quickly and go back to these former things. And then he says, to then number three, to do your first work. So you have remember, repent, and return. If you want to have three R's related to it, or if you want two R's and a D, we give you options at this church. You can have uh, remember, repent, and, and do. But the third thing is he calls on them now to do their first works. And he says, here's the solution. Go back and do what you did all the things that you did when your relationship with God was what you wanted it to be, when it was growing, when it was marked by first love, even if you don't feel that love right now. Go back and do those things. It's a good thing to do. To go back and look and say, what was the place of the Word of God in my life in, in the early days when we would sit and, and you wouldn't, the devotions wouldn't be done with a stopwatch? or conscious of the time. We, I mean, we would sit down and read entire chapters and books in one sitting. The place of the Word of, of, of God. And it was the standard for our life. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does God say here? And obeying Him was more important than, than anything uh, else. And our obedience was immediate. And it was unquestioned uh, obedience. And we used to go through, uh, you know, uh, Bible tapes like candy, you know, listening to them and these kinds of things. And to go back and ask myself, what was the place of prayer in my life back then? The daily prayer. And when someone would come and say, you know, I got this situation happening and that situation and all. And the immediate thing we would do is just to stop and say, well, let's pray about that right now. And I say, you know, I'll pray for you. I've got a bad memory, but anyway, I'll try to get that, you know, thing and, and, and all of that. And that time of just waiting on the Lord, just expecting He's going to speak to me today. I know He's going to speak to me today. I know He's going to say something to me today. And that kind of place of prayer. What was the place of fellowship in my life back then? I'm in church every time 
you know, the door opens. And then pretty soon, you know, I get there a couple times a month and a couple times, and this and all. And I wonder why I'm having problems, you know, and my relationship with the Lord and these kinds of things and all. And, but to think back when the fellowship with, the, with other believers was consistent. Who were my friends then? Who were my peers and influencers back then versus who are my peers and influencers today? What place did serving the Lord uh, have in my life back in the early days versus what it has today? What places praise and worship have in our life back in those days versus today? What about my time? How was it spent in those days versus now? My priorities, what was most important back then and what's most important now? What do I put before my eyes now that I did not put before my eyes uh, then? What about the material things of the world and all of, of, of those uh, things and the deceitfulness of riches and and all of that what was the place how did I handle material things in those days versus now and you think we think back about the early days and the sharing of our faith constantly being asked to be refilled with the Holy Spirit for the day and for whatever event we were going into and when we looked at every single day with that one great desire God just use me somehow use me today and 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 that that kind of thing and and the interesting thing is that when a person has uh, fallen away from from their first love is that when they'll reassess what it was that their first works were and then go back and make those the priorities once again they discover that the relationship is sitting there right where I once left it and I always love the simpleness of of the council sometimes a person will come to me and they'll say you know, I used to have this intimacy with God and these things and that and the whole thing is crazy and I walked away for a time and I let all these other things intrude in my life and I wish I could have that kind of a relationship with the Lord again and I go right back to this particular epistle. So all you need to do is just remember from where you've fallen, turn from these other things, go back and fashion your life the way that it once was, that relationship sitting there and, and it's uh, waiting for you right where we left it, sometimes in a marriage counseling. A couple will come in and they're so disgusted with each other that uh, they can hardly stand to be in the same room uh, with, with one another. And uh, she'll say, well, you know, he does this and that and he shouldn't and he doesn't do this and that and he shouldn't. I'm tired of it. He said, I'll tell you, tired. Uh, she never does this and she always does that and this and that and that and this and I'm just as tired of it myself. And they come in and they, and they feel like there isn't any hope at all for the marriage. They don't know why they even bothered to come in and all. And sometimes in that kind of a scenario, I would just ask, say, you know, could we just stop for a moment? Um, was there ever a time you ever got along in your relationship? Well, yeah, back when we were going together in the early years of our marriage and this kind of thing. Was there ever a time where you were just head over heels in love with 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 uh, one another when you counted the time until work was over so you could see her and you could see him and uh, yeah, yeah that was there but that was five, two years ago five years ago ten years ago twenty years ago but the point is is it was there and I know what it feels like and I'm capable of it because we once experienced it within the marriage and then to sit down with that couple and say let's take a look at what your priorities were 
and what were the important things in your life, where your time went, how you viewed one another, your attitudes towards one another in those early times when the marriage was what you wanted it to be. And now let's get back to that and see if this first love isn't there. And of course, it always is. And then Jesus begins to close the letter in verse 6 with his uh, encouragement of them related to the Nicolaitans, which they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And uh, we don't know exactly what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were. Uh, the word Nicolaitan is made up of two words, Nikael, which means to conquer, laity, which means the people. We get our word laity from it, uh, laos, so it means to conquer the people. It appears to be a religious system where the clergy were over the laity. In other words, here is Jesus fighting in the hearts of his own people for a place of first love in their heart, and then he looks and says there's this religious system that's developing right within Christianity. Now they want to compete with me for first love in the hearts of my people and become mediators between me and God. And they want people to be in love with them more than, they, than, uh, than in love with the Lord. And they don't point people to the Lord. And the pastor becomes the big superstar and getting all the attention and the worship leader and all of these kinds of things. And, and Jesus looks at it and says concerning the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that he hates it also. And then he encourages us there in verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He doesn't force us to hear. doesn't force us at all. He just takes and he lays it out. And here's the individual application. I can't hear for the whole church or the whole body of Christ in Modesto. I can only hear for me. And you can, can hear for you. Each one of us has to, to take and, and do on our own what it is that Jesus lays out here in, in this, this particular uh, letter to the church at Ephesus. And then he gives a promise to the overcomer. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so Jesus reminds them of the reward that awaits those who serve and test and persevere, but who do it out of a love for Him. And that at the end of that kind of a life, there is a great blessing and a great reward. There's a tremendous revelation, I think, of Jesus Christ in this letter. And the importance of love to Him. I almost wouldn't believe it if he didn't say it. And the Lord consistently through the years and my own walk with the Lord since 1980 has consistently, when I have been prone to wander and where the work has become more important to me because of pressures and struggles and these things more important than the relationship where I felt it necessary to sacrifice the relationship for a time a little bit, the intimacy and these things in order to get this particular work done and that kind of thing. And he's always used this letter to, to remind me of what's most important to me and to bring me back to this place. And it's priceless in what it is accomplished in God's people all through the ages and I'm glad that tonight it's been planted in our heart for that purpose by the Holy Spirit to work within us to always be reminded as hard as it can be to believe that our relationship with him is what is most important to him 
I could not believe it unless he wrote it. That I know what his relationship, my relationship with him, what he brings to it means to me. But if he did not express what we bring to the relationship and that it means this much to him, I wouldn't believe it. But it does. He saved a bride. The relationship is everything to him. Yes, the other things must be done. They're important. But we're never to get the minor in front of the major. Let's stand together and we'll pray and we'll have the worship team close us.